0: Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 97, verses 1 through 12. Hear God's word for us. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice. Because of your judgments, O Lord, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. You might not notice, but my shirt's a little soaked, and I didn't drool on myself. I missed my water as I was drinking. You ever do that? You just missed it? I'm sorry if you can see that. Um, I hope everyone had an enjoyable Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving can be a lovely time of reflection and gratitude, and I hope yours was just that, Um, a time where you reflected with how God has provided for you throughout this year. I took the opportunity to fly up to my parents' place in Ohio. It was just, I have three sisters, but it was just me and my parents, and it was a special time of just me and them and good food and rest. There's lots to be thankful for. And as much as Thanksgiving can bring us joy, I also think it's important to mention that holidays can be a difficult time of year for many of us. And if that's you, if you carry any amount, large or small, of grief into the holidays, with you this year, I just want you to know that part of you is welcome in this place. Some of us here, as much fun as our Thanksgivings are, and as much celebration and Black Friday shopping and all of that, we can't help but think of happy memories with family members who are no longer with us. And there are some people here who are living into singleness, and it's that these times during the year, some of us can find ourselves wishing for our own family, our own partner or spouse. So whatever you carry with you into the holidays, It's welcome here in this place. And let me add that God welcomes that part of you too. And if you haven't given whatever you're carrying over to Him, it would be His joy to carry that for you. We'll talk more about how Advent, this time of year we're entering into, creates space for that. And we'll talk more about that later. This is our first Sunday of Advent, so we're starting our Advent series today. And to kick it off, just let me ask you a question. It's a simple question. What's in a name? What's in a name? I mean, we all have them. What exactly is held in a name? What is communicated in a name? And I would say you can learn a great deal about someone through their name. Names have value. They have meaning. They have history. They have emotion. The Advent series we're starting is He Shall Be Called. And in this series, we're going to explore the names of God that we find throughout the Bible And we're going to see how those names relate back to the first advent, which is the birth of Jesus. So I think you'll be surprised at how the names of God throughout the Bible are integrated with the birth narrative of Jesus, found particularly in the Gospel of Luke. And so to begin our series, as you heard brilliantly read by Carolyn, we are in Psalm 97. And the writer of this psalm uses a particular name to describe God. The name is this God Most High. In Hebrew, that's El Elyon. You notice the alliteration, El Elyon. It's really quite beautiful. Can you say it with me? El Elyon. And this morning, we're going to talk. We're going to walk through this psalm together. We're just going to walk through it in chunks, and we're going to see that the writer of this psalm wants to remind us of two things about God. And these two things are important to grasp as we understand Advent and the God who comes to us in the person of Jesus. So turn with me to the first five verses of our psalm. And as you're getting there, let me remember, I'll just remind you briefly that Psalms were originally written as songs, right? They were often written and sung during times of like ceremonies and festivals. So as I read this to you, I just want to remind you that the language used to describe God might feel like different language than we would choose today. But that's okay, of course. There's lots we can learn. So I'll read the first five verses for us The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. You know, in our daily lives in our routines, in our worlds, our daily issues, our problems, the injustices that we face, all of these things, when we like, reflect on our life, they can seem really big. And why? Well, that's because they dominate our mental space and our emotional capacity. They, they fill up what we can handle. And sometimes, because our lives are dominated by all of these things, God, well, he can actually seem small. And here's what I mean by that. What I mean is that we begin to see ourselves as the only ones really having an impact on our lives. Over time, it can seem like God, well, he's not really affecting things. He just expects things from us. It can seem as though we're just living our lives, and God, he's somewhere else, and he just expects us to live as he would wish us to live. And this psalm, It starts off by speaking to those of us who have begun to see our daily lives, our own problems, our struggles, our injustices, all of these things that fill up our worlds as really, really big. And conversely, because of that, God grows smaller. The writer begins by essentially saying, remember who God is. Remember who you actually know God to be. The writer of the psalm says it this way, the Lord reigns. Some scholars say this, it can be translated as Yahweh is king. There is a God who rules over the world. And this is what the writer of the psalm says. He follows up the statement with the Lord reigns, with let the earth rejoice. The whole earth should rejoice. Why? Because it has a ruler. It has someone who sits on a cosmic throne. The songwriter doesn't stop there. The earth has reason to rejoice, not just because we have a ruler on the cosmic throne, but because this, the ruler has righteousness and justice as the foundation of his throne. Are you concerned with justice? Guess what? You have a God who is on your side. You have a God for whom justice is at the very foundation of his throne. And the writer goes on the mountains melt like wax before the Lord before the Lord of all the earth. He's reminding you and me that this God that we worship, we would do well to stop every once in a while and consider his bigness. Yes, bigness is a real word. I checked. (laughs) You see, God is not only God most high. He's also God most big. Some of us here need to be reminded of the bigness of God this morning and what that actually means for us in our lives. You know, when I'm in conversations with folks about the things of God, the greatest challenge that I hear to the bigness of God, that I can sense when I talk to people, both Christians and non-Christians alike, the greatest challenge seems to revolve around a certain question. Here it is. It often sounds something like this. How could God... How could he? If he really is in control, if he is really that big, how could he? Why would he? And often this question is born out of our own personal experience of, or our witnessing of some kind of pain and suffering. The suffering can be really great, or it can be really small. That's not the point. It's the experience of pain that causes us to question, hey, if he really is so big, then why? Tim Keller, a famous pastor, earlier this year, he published a long article in The Atlantic. It says, Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. He talks about having written a book on dealing with death from a Christian perspective. So he wrote a book, published this book, and soon after it was published, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Very serious form of pancreatic cancer. And in the article, he's almost brutally honest. He talks about his own panic, his fear, his fear, how his faith didn't immediately offer him consolation to the idea of his death. He saw his book that he wrote sitting on his shelf, and he was like, I don't even want to open it. I don't want to read what I wrote. But he also makes this observation. He says that the philosopher Charles Taylor in his book, The Secular Age, talks about how modern society has struggled with suffering more than any other time in history. While humans have always struggled with the ways and justices of God, this is true, it's not until quite recently that people have begun to feel that their suffering makes the existence of God implausible. I'll say that again. It's not until recently that people have begun to feel like their own suffering makes the existence of God implausible. For millennia, people did not hold this modern belief that we all deserve a comfortable life. Charles Taylor, the philosopher, and he's not a Christian, argues that we have become so confident in our own powers, our own powers of reason and logic, that we can't imagine any good reason for why suffering would exist. So we assume there can't be a reason for why suffering exists. If we can't wrap our minds around it, then we assume there can't be a reason for it. Here's Keller's ultimate point. If God is big enough... If there is a God who is big enough to merit your anger over the suffering that you witness or endure, if there is a God who is really great enough that you become embittered towards him because of what you have experienced, then that God is actually great enough and big enough to have reasons for allowing suffering that you can't detect. You see, it doesn't make sense to believe in an infinite God and yet still be convinced that you can keep a tally on good and evil just like he does. And it doesn't make sense for us to get angry or toss him out the window of our lives if he doesn't see things the way we see them. And there's actually a character in the Bible who wrestles with this problem of suffering and who's wrestling with these questions. And this character actually really wants to take God to court for what God has done to him. This is the person of Job. And Job goes through an immense amount of pain and hardship. And after everything happens, after it all goes down, Job is sitting there and you just see this bitterness and this anger well up within him. And he wants to put God on trial. He wants to take God to court for all the evil he has experienced. And it's almost like he's saying, how could you, God? How could you? And in a turn of events, God actually shows up to court. (laughs) Do you remember what his response is to Job? Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? In this poetic response, God reminds Job of his bigness. It's almost like he's saying, Job, I have become small to you. Let me remind you of how big I am how I organized the stars, how I dug out the trenches in the deepest oceans. What do you know about all of that, Job? And after God finishes, Job ends up saying, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, of things too wonderful for me. See, Job lost a vision for the bigness of God. Sometimes in our lives, we need to take a step back. And we need to re-examine our actual conception of who we think God is. We need to ask ourselves, who do, I, who do I think of God to be? What do I picture when I picture God? What do I think about when I think about God? A.W. Tozer, the theologian and pastor, says, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Has your understanding of God been shaped by culture? Has your picture of God grown small? Have you unconsciously slipped into the assumption that God lives for your sake and not you for him? This ancient song was written to help us reorient our hearts, to help us reevaluate this unconscious slipping into seeing God as small. God is bigger and more glorious and more powerful than we often give him credit for when we remind ourselves of the bigness and of the glory of God, and when we surrender our minds and our hearts to that, this offers us a remedy to the anger we might feel when we blame a small God for our suffering, for things that we don't understand. The writer of this psalm has more to say. (laughs) He doesn't stop there. He says, you see, God is not just God most big. He's also God most high. The writer wants us to consider God's position Look with me at the next section, verses seven through nine. All worshippers of images are put to shame. Who makes their boast in worthless idol? Who make their boast in worthless idols? Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. I mentioned I was at my uh, earlier that I was at my parents for Thanksgiving. And again, yeah, I have three sisters, but they're all married, and they're scattered across the globe, so it was just me and the, me and the parents in Akron, Ohio, um, for some turkey. And over breakfast one morning, I was talking with my mom, and that's a picture of me and my mom. You can tell I'm a little nostalgic for home. I'm throwing up a picture. Um, so we were talking, and what she shared was really interesting, I, I asked her, what it means to be like a parent of now adult children. (laughs) And I thought what she shared was really interesting. She talked about how she had to reorient her understanding of her position. What she meant by that is that now that her children are adults, she understands it's not her position to interject herself onto all areas of our lives. (laughs) And two, she said she doesn't think she should offer her opinion on a lot of things unless it's asked for. And basically, she emphasized this word position. And as my mom and I talked, it became clear to me that this word position is really what this idea of God being most high is all about. By using this name for God, the writer is telling us that God has the highest of all positions. You'll notice that the writer compares God, Yahweh, to other gods. And see, it was common knowledge in the ancients that These created deities, like these lowercase g gods, they only had local power. So for example, when you walked into a new territory or a new city or a new country, there was a local deity there that people worshipped. And this deity was recognized to have localized power there. What the writer of the psalm declares here is that there is a God who stands above all of those created gods. There is a true God who has no geographical limit to his power. Verse nine reads, you, O Lord, are most high over all of the earth. You are exalted far beyond other gods. God is not only bigger and more glorious than we can conceive, but he's also in a higher position of authority than any created thing. There is one who is always higher, who is always greater, who is always more powerful, who always has more authority. What does this mean for us today? Well, if God really is the most high, if he really does have ultimate authority, if he does, then that would require something of us. It would require us to acknowledge that authority in some way. Let me explain what I mean. When I hear people talk about faith or I hear people describe their faith, sometimes I hear people describe their faith as something that sits opposite to reason. So they'll say something like this. Well, when it comes down to it, it's just really about trusting. You just have to, you just have to end up having faith. And they don't realize it, but this description of faith is a reaction to the modernist argument that faith stands opposite of reason, that you can't hold hold those together. The modernist argument is that science has killed the need for faith, right? It's this idea that we have enough data now, faith in God isn't needed. And there are many postmodern, even not particularly Christian, arguments against that line of thinking. But the predominant view in our post-Christian West, and even sometimes in our own paradigms of faith as Christians, faith stands opposed to reason. You just have to kind of blindly trust. Now go with me here. At the time that this ancient psalm was written, that was not the paradigm that this writer used to understand faith. For the ancients, faith did not stand opposed to reason. No, you could have both. For them, faith stood opposite of something else. And that thing was self-sufficiency. So again, faith wasn't incompatible with reason. Those two things could be held together using our God-given minds. Instead, what faith is incompatible with is self-sufficiency. Faith requires acknowledging that you can't do it on your own. Faith does not require you to throw out your brain. Faith requires you to say by using your brain, I am a person who needs help from something outside of myself. Faith requires humility. Humility to the ultimate authority. Humility to admit that I can't do this on my own. It requires a surrender to a higher authority who you can give your life to in ways that you aren't able to give your life to yourself. This ultimate authority can give you life in ways that you cannot give yourself life. Faith requires acknowledging you are not the most high in your own life, that you actually need help from something holy apart from you. So in effect, what this writer of this psalm says is that there is a God who has ultimate authority in the universe, and he deserves us to acknowledge him as that. And the psalm writer says this that this should lead us to rejoicing. And why? Because isn't it a relief to know that when you surrender to this highest authority, you are in the hands of someone who knows no end to his power? Isn't it a relief to know that your life is surrendered to the one who has justice and righteousness as the foundations of his throne? When you live for God Most High, you are not surrendering to a God who has limitations. When you ask for help from God Most High, you are not crying out to a God who knows an end to his power. No, this God has endless resources at his disposal to give you life. And it's for this reason that the writer says, the Most High God gives us reason to rejoice. Why does this all matter for Advent? Why why does this matter for Advent? Let me tell you. At the very beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke talks about the birth of baby Jesus, right? Talks about the birth of Jesus coming into the world. Luke records an angel saying this to Mary. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. Jesus. Of God. So at the same time, the angel continues, and the angel says that Elizabeth, who is Mary's cousin, will become pregnant with Zechariah, or sorry, will become pregnant by Zechariah, her husband. And this child that they have, Elizabeth and Zechariah, is John the Baptist. And after this child is born, Zachariah like bursts into song and Luke records it for us and he writes a song to his son John saying this, and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Did you notice the name used to describe God there? Used to describe Jesus. Often when we think of Advent, we think of it as this kind of sentimental, kind of cute little period waiting for baby Jesus while we sing Christmas carols. And we light commemorative candles and we think that's nice. And don't get me wrong, I love all that stuff. You know, I do. Well, the present day monk Richard War says this, Advent is not about sentimental waiting for baby Jesus. When you read Luke's birth narrative of Jesus, there is no sentimentality there. The word used to describe God, the God being born from Mary, is El Elyon, God Most High. And I promise you that everything we just talked about in Psalm 97 is embodied in that name there. When we read that name in the birth narrative of Jesus, we should think of his cosmic bigness his position as the highest rank in the universe and as the prophet Isaiah said ruling on his throne in the heavens while the earth is his footstool what is astounding to mary in her response in this gospel of luke is not that the the angels before her and it's not that some local god is being born as a little baby no the angel is telling her the most high god is coming to earth through her womb this is astounding And this is the beautiful paradox that lies at the heart of Christianity. In the person of Jesus, God most high becomes God most low. I sometimes get the question, why why did God come come to earth this way? Why, Why did he have to come to earth this way? And my answer is often snarky. It's often this, how else would you have wanted him to come? Tell me if you can think of a better way, a more beautiful way. Why wouldn't you want the God most high to become God most low? Why wouldn't you want him to become one of us, a human being, so that through his birth and ultimately ultimately through his sacrificial death and resurrection, he would redeem us and reconcile the world to God? Because of that work, we don't have to do anything to earn approval from God apart from humbling ourselves and surrendering to him who humbled himself first and became God most low on our behalf. Paul says it this way in his second letter to the local church in Corinth, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And I'm well aware that for most of us in America, Christmas has less to do with like, contemplating the incarnation of Jesus and more to do with celebrating with friends and family and reindeer and Black Friday and post-Christmas sales and all of that. I get that. And this is precisely why Advent is important. In the church calendar, every period of celebration, it's preceded by a time of preparation. And that's the case with Lent too, right? It's a preparation for Easter. Advent is four Sundays. It's a time for us to prepare our hearts and our minds and our souls for Christmas. And what is Christmas? Christmas is the celebration of God Most High coming as God Most Low in the person of Jesus. So for, to, uh, for, for us to practice Advent, it is for us to practice putting the busyness of the Christmas season aside just for a few moments every day. If Advent is anything, Advent creates space, and Advent takes time to pause and to consider who God is and how he has come to us in the person of Jesus. And because Advent creates space for this reflection, Advent also creates room for things that the merriment and jovialness of Christmas often doesn't as we sing joyful carols, which is a great thing. I love caroling. But when we rush into it, and if that's all that we do, we'll find that we've left something behind. And perhaps we're living living in denial. If that's the only note of our Christmas season, then there isn't room to acknowledge the other host of emotions that we feel. And there's no room to address the brokenness that still exists in the world, even during Christmas time. Advent makes room for us to process the hard things in life, in light of Jesus' coming. It allows for us to acknowledge the brokenness and sorrow of the world and not live into the practice of denial, which is easy to do. And this is really what's healthy about Advent. It allows space for both grief and true joy, for both hopelessness and real hope. The Anglican priest Tish Harrison Warren, she says this, That in Advent, we acknowledge that both darkness and light are real. The Gospel of John says, light has come into the darkness, and darkness cannot overcome it. John is referring to Jesus there. He's our light in our darkness. And Advent says, let's pause and look at the darkness just for a moment, so that we can relish in the unbelievable unbelievable hope that is the light. So you see, Advent allows for us to truly celebrate the God who gives us hope in the midst of a broken world. And as we close, let me remind you today that we lit the hope candle and that seems appropriate for Psalm 97. Our God is a God with no limits. He's not bound by anything. He's not bound by his creation. He doesn't report to anyone else. And when we surrender to this God, when we ask this God for help, we are putting our hope in the greatness of him who knows no end to his resources. I pray that this year, Advent heightens your anticipation for Jesus. Again, our hope as people following in the way of Jesus is not in sentimentality. Our hope is in the most high God who became God most low for us. And that is a reason to have joy during the Christmas season. Would you pray with me please? Lord, we thank you for Advent. We thank you for the Christmas season and all the celebration and joy and the goodness that comes with that. We thank you that we're not left in hopelessness, but God, that you give us hope. And that hope starts with Jesus in a manger. We ask, Lord, that you just elevate our capacity to understand your bigness. Help us to create space in our lives Call out to us through your Holy Spirit to create space so that we might reflect on who you are this Christmas season, God. We love you. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, Father, that we pray these things. Amen.